to episode 430 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to continue our Ernst Lubitsch series with, uh, with The Smiling Lieutenant from 1931, which is, uh, which is an old, good old-fashioned good old fashioned musical because nothing, nothing's as musical than a French gentleman staring straight at you, straight, staring straight at the screen, making eye contact with you and singing at you. Only like three songs, too. All three, way too many. Three too many, like <laughs> eye contacts. Like if you want to sing, that's fine. But the eye contact is was that really? Th- I was like, sir, I don't know you that well. The movie banks a lot about on like the appeal of that guy just looking yeah. at you. We'll talk about how much, how many people like are in love with this man later in the episode but it's a it's a lot it's majority of the movie um all right well i'm gonna kick it off with a film i didn't actually see last week but uh i've seen it recently and that is cadejo blanco um it is the one of the first um films out of like kind of the guatemalan um film not really film department but like uh one of the one of the first productions that was made and produced in Guatemala. Um, and I can't say that the visit Guatemala is going to have this like plane to say, Hey, come check it out because it's all about human trafficking and gangs. So, um, but Cadeo Blanco, it came out last year. It played, uh, I guess it played at 2021 TIFF, um, but was one of those kind of hidden uh, world cinema movies that, you know, you don't get too much information on. Um, so unfortunately I missed it at that film at that festival, but this one, it stars, uh, an actress named Karen Martinez and she, her character Sarita, uh, is kind of just this working class, um, lives with her grandmother and her sister. They live in Guatemala city. So, you know, in the, in the suburbs of this, of this city. And, um, she goes with her sister to a nightclub and her sister um after a few drinks is like yeah i brought you here because i need to break up with uh this guy i'm seeing but he you know i don't think anything's gonna go down but just in case i kind of want you nearby um and he uh you you kind of pick up through the interaction that he is a part of this gang and comes and you know comes into the city during the weekends to work at this bar Um, and so she and her sister have this big fight because she's like, hey, like this dude seems like he's shitty. You should, you know, just leave him. And she kind of, you know, rejects that and is like, you know, just get the hell out of here. So, um, Sarita goes home, uh, wakes up the next day and can't find, uh, you know, can't find her sister. She calls everybody. They get the police involved, all this stuff. Nothing. Um, she tries to go to the bar again and like kind of flirt with the ex-boyfriend and get information from him but doesn't really get anything um and so then she so she she ends up learning that he is the gang that he is um a part of is is in this seaside town a number of hours outside of guatemala city and so she ends up um going there kind of weaseling her way into this gang and joins it into in order to infiltrate and get information about what happened to her sister 
Um, and naturally, like infiltrating the gang includes um, a little light prostitution, some uh, stabbing and shooting people, and drug trafficking. So, um, but yeah, this it's a pretty it's a pretty it's a pretty slim and. Uh, relatively stylish thriller i thought um it's very self-assured for kind of being this um i looked at at the director justin lerner which is a very guatemalan name um (laughs) and he had made like four movies outside but they were a lot more smaller projects this one was a little bit bigger budget but um yeah it's it's not you know i i kind of run into this problem with a lot of these like um granted like all you know there's a lot of the american thrillers look very much the same so i'm not saying but uh, you know some they're especially like these kind of european thrillers they all kind of like look and feel like they have the same uh aesthetic going like the plot is always kind of similar and like this was kind of like a nice break from an american or european thriller you know it very much has the same hallmarks it's not like anything that's transcending the genre at all but I think it utilizes everything uh, pretty well. The main actress, um, Karen Martinez, is uh, is solid, but the, I think the 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 real star of it is um, the what's his name, Brandon Lopez, who plays the the ex boyfriend who she kind of um, gets closer and closer with, trying to find information about her sister's disappearance. Um, but it, I mean, it, it's twist. It kind of has some good twists and turns. And, you know, once she joins this this gang, like the first thing she has to do is seduce this um, rival drug dealer, um, get him, you know, into this motel room so that the so two of the other, you know, the gang members with her can, you know, put a hit on him and kill him. Uh, and it's it's a it's a pretty tense well set up sequence where she is kind of floating around this club gets his attention he you know he wants they get in the car he wants to like drive back to his place and she's is able to get him out of the car to to go to her um to her motel room and all this stuff um it's in you know in those it's it's a those sequences are pretty tense you have uh, a lot of just these interactions with the the leader of this gang that um i feel like she kind of holds her she holds her own in um and a lot of these a lot of these violent sequences um uh i think are set up in a way that you know there is the actress is able to kind of really get this like kind of emotional toll out of those out of those moments that um i think makes it more than just kind of like bang bang we're just gonna go shoot all these people and leave a blood trail so um it's it's even though it came out last year it's i think they're trying to get a a u.s release through you know art house uh theaters um pretty soon we got a special screening here in savannah so um if you can go see it cadejo blanco it seems like one of those um it'll pop up like on your hulu or netflix or whatever it's just kind of this you know what the heck's this thing um but solid thriller solid solid little thriller um reminded me a little bit of like uh if if people uh remember sin nombre um uh, miss bala like like movies like that like it kind of has the sen- a similar vibe of um of like kind of how it handles um kind of outsider joining into this 
um, criminal gang um, kind of thing. So, and that's Sin Nombre especially was one that I was kind of thinking about while while watching this one. That's a good that's a good uh, uh, reference point for people. So, Cadejo Blanco, check it out. I'm sure it'll get I'm sure it'll get some sort of wideish release or something at some point. Do you know anything about the film industry in Guatemala? I don't. Um, I'm just curious how how many. I, I I don't get the feeling that they export a ton of films, but I'm wondering like within the country if maybe there's more. I just know this was like a big deal. I'm sure they have stuff in the country. This was just kind of the first. Like it's getting sent out to international film festivals. It's kind of going through a circuit. It was picked up by um, the film distributor Film Movement, who's going to be distributing it out. So, I think that I think it's just more one that's got that broke out of just Guatemala is is more the thing. It's not that Guatemalan people just started making movies, you know, two years ago, <laughs> two or three years ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they are. Yeah, so <laughs> this was this was kind of the the breakthrough one. Um, that uh, that kind of got it out, got the word out there, and I I don't know. I'm like you know, again, is this gonna like I said, this is, is this gonna be one that Guatemalan tourism is gonna be cheering? No, you know, it's it's all about human trafficking and drug gangs and people getting killed. So, but good little thriller, good little fun. Uh, uh, I I like um, it, uh, it. I like how it handles. Um, some class issues in there. It's pretty interesting. So, Cadejo Blanca. Check it out if it ever comes out near you. Um, but I'm going to turn it over to you, Michael, because you have the movie, the movie of the moment for the, the, the film Twittery people. Yeah, this is certainly... I went, I went out and saw Tar, T-A with an accent, R um this past week and uh if you've been on the letterbox or or the or, or been on twitter as it's you know sinking into elon musk's mire um you've probably heard of tar um it's um it's it, it you know like i I, th- I think it's worth the conversation like it, it's the kind of movie that seems intentionally provoking conversation so it makes sense that this is the movie that a lot of people are talking about right now as we're kind of like edging into awards season i suppose um and so i went and saw this this is um the first film in a while that has been directed by tom field and i'm not familiar with his other movies like i haven't seen in the bedroom or um I can't remember the other one. In the bedroom, I had at least heard of. But anyway, it's been a while since Tom Field directed a movie, and now he's directing this one, um, which I will not describe a ton of the plot because it, for reasons I'll get into in a minute. But basically, this is about um, this fictitious, you know, but within the world of the movie, this, like, apparently, like, just genius, um, uh, like, conductor and composer, um, whose name is Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett. And uh, the movie opens with this interview with um, an actual, like, New Yorker film critic. It's not Alex Ross, it's the other Richard guy. Richard Brody? Um, I was... No, 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 Brody's a... Uh... He's a film critic, isn't he? Oh, you mean a movie... Oh, you mean music critic. Did I say movie yeah, critic? Yeah, I, like, I was like, Richard Brody's oh, in this? That's awesome. 
no, no, no. Um, uh, it's a music critic for the New Yorker, and it's like a the. It's got to be like a ten minute scene that's just like opening, and it's an interview in front of an audience, um, uh, interviewing uh, Lydia Tarr uh, for the magazine, I suppose, and it's also a live event. And uh, as soon as you get like all this exposition um, about her backstory, so like you know she's just she she's got an egot right apparently um she has all these other acclaimed um you know uh, prestigious awards and she's currently in the process of adapting this series of oh man my so one of the things about this movie is it uses a lot of uh, it drops a lot of names and uses a lot of terminology from like a symphonic like or the orchestral world and I'm so out of touch with that that I'm sure that I will misname things it, just just talking about this now um but she is um adapting she's in the process of adapting a series of I think symphonies um, that Leonard Bernstein had also adapted. And Leonard Bernstein is like her idol and like her, her muse basically. Um, and so like, that was the person who got her into music. And so now that she's like got this clout in her career, she's deciding to like readapt these things that Leonard Bernstein had also readapted. And she's done all, I think there were nine symphonies. Um, and there's only the fifth one left. Um, and so the movie is basically surrounding like her and her life as she is starting to um, decide the arrangement for and then start uh, picking the musicians who are going to be performing this last in her cycle of um, symphonies that she's adapting. And it's kind of like the impression is this is kind of like her victory lap her like kind of like a you know, she's done all the, like, you know, all the stuff you're supposed to do. And so now she gets to do the thing that she really wants to do. Um, and basically what you see over the course of the movie is that fall apart for her. And the reasons why it falls apart are a little bit opaque, which is something that's kind of weird about the movie, but, and I'll get into that in a second, but like the, the big thing that immediately presents itself with the movie is like Kate Blanchett as she, you know, in this acting role, um, is just magnetic because Lydia Tarr is this like very acerbic prickly personality. Um, and Kate Blanchett just like really jumps into that. It reminded me a lot of Phantom Thread, like how Daniel Day-Lewis does, um, the, the, um, the, the, what is like the fab, what's the, what's the term for the guy that Daniel Day-Lewis is? He, he makes the clothes, you know, um, the designer? That guy, it's like that, like that kind of designer. Yeah, I guess so. It's like that kind of role in that, like, it's just an extremely watchable asshole, you know, like, uh, you just love to see like this person just be just so, um, you know, just like an absolute dick to everyone, but also be like, just so amusing and also like so self-confident about it that you're kind of like caught up in it. Um, and, uh, but eventually like, as a result of like how she's treated people, things start to, like chickens start coming home to roost. But the thing that really um, cements it is that there's like throughout the first like uh, 30 minutes of the movie or something, there's she keeps getting emails from this person and they kind of withhold who she's getting emails from. And her assistant is like, what should we do about these emails? And uh, Tara's just like, just ignore them. Um, but it turns out this was like a former protege that she had worked with um, who. Um, eventually in the course of the movie and this will be like as far as the plot like I'll, I'll spoil I guess and this is like a minor spoiler um 
since most of the plot hinges on this, but this person kills herself um, as a result of like a kind of like um, mental breakdown after she doesn't, according to the person and these emails, um, Tar has promised her things as a result of sexual favors um, that Tar has then not followed through on. And in terms of like career and having picked her for like uh, chairs in the symphony and things like that. Um, and so the movie kind of flips at that point from like, oh, Tara, what an amusing um, prickly genius to, oh, Tara, are you actually just a manipulative, awful person who destroys everyone around you? Um and that's kind of the arc of the movie. Like a lot of the conversation about this movie has been like, is this a movie about cancel culture and stuff? And I mean, it is definitely adjacent to that because like a lot of the movie hinges on like what happens to this woman's career uh, as this allegation comes out. Like once it, once it becomes public that like um, it's alleged that she has like, you know, uh, been in a sexual relationship with a kind of understudy who, um, you know, is then manipulated and then, you know, eventually driven to suicide. Um, but the movie is super tricky about that because the movie is exclusively from Lydia Tarr's perspective in the sense that we don't ever get any sort of anything, any scene in which she is not present. Um, and we also don't get some scenes in which she would be present. Um, like they're just gone from the movie. Um, and so, what the movie presents us with is a lot of people making accusations um, and a lot of behavior by Tar that is like questionable, but the movie never gives us like a definite like smoking gun as far as like, what has she actually done? Like what is the extent to which she is, um, you know, actually trafficked in like abusive behavior. And it's clear that like she is, you know, problematic, but it's unclear, like, to what extent are we supposed to think that she has actually done these things? And I say that it's unclear because, like, as I was watching the movie, I wasn't sure, like, how much of this am I supposed to be inferring? And having gone and read reviews, it seems like people are very split on, is the movie, like, what is the movie trying to say about, like, what Lydia Tarr has done and what we're supposed to think about her? And the movie's really, it's just really naughty and complicated to walk through because it seems like, the more I've thought about it, it seems like a crucial component of the project of the movie is to have withheld this information. Um, and so rather than it being a movie about cancel culture, it's kind of a movie about sitting and watching cancel culture in the sense of like that most of us have access to it, which is that like, oh, someone alleges impropriety by the celebrity. The celebrity says that they didn't do it. Uh, but we also know that the celebrity has really, you know, a pro has a track record with, you know, whatever, you know, problematic behavior that we've kind of brushed off as amusing in the, in the past, you know, and what are we supposed to do with that? Like we, as you know, I will never be able to sit there and like actually suss out, like I will never have been in the room when any of this stuff happens just because I'm not connected to the industry. And like this film being set in the world of classical music means that even fewer people are connected with it than like, let's say in like the film industry when stuff like this comes out. Um, and I don't know, it's just really, it's, it's kind of a weird and unnerving movie in that sense of like you as a viewer feel kind of powerless in terms of what you're supposed to be thinking because you are at the mercy of what the movie chooses to tell you. And like, as the movie goes on, like the movie tells you less and less stuff. 
and it becomes even more unnerving in that sense where it's like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be thinking at this moment. Like, like, like for instance, there's a, there's a moment in which uh, Lydia Tarr is in like, this movie takes place in Berlin, by the way. Um, she's in like some rundown, like apartment block in Berlin. And she is like in this like kind of like underground alleyway. I'm not exactly sure what it is. And she hears, keeps hearing footsteps behind her and gets increasingly spooked and starts running. And she runs up some stairs and trips and falls on the stairs. And the instant that she falls, the movie cuts to the next day and she's walking around with like her face mangled. And she says that she's been attacked. Um, but we never actually see the attack. We never actually see if someone is truly following her or if she's just hearing things or just hearing footsteps and perceiving that someone is following her. But she goes around the rest of the movie claiming that like, you know, oh, I've been attacked. And that's not even a major part of the movie, but that's kind of indicative of the kind of games that this movie plays with like, you have to make an inference about what truly has happened. Um, And the movie does not... Like, the movie kind of baits you in certain ways to think that things happen. But then when you sit back and think about it, you think, I don't actually know that that thing happened. I'm just, my brain is making a connection because of two scenes that are juxtaposed with one another. Um, And it's really interesting and really weird. And I don't know, like, I'm not sure if this movie means anything. It may be, like, actually an anti-cancel culture movie. It may be, like, just kind of this reactionary, like, I saw someone uh, compare it on Letterboxd to that, like, Harper's letter that a bunch of people signed, you know? Um, yeah. Well, that's, or, uh, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, you know, even though you say it's kind of like adjacent cancel culture, adjacent, like what do you, at least in your opinion, like, what do you think it's trying to say about I it? No, I have no idea. That's like, it's a super opaque movie in that regard because we never are told what happens. Like, like, or I guess what I'm saying is we're never shown what happens, right? We're given reasons to mistrust Lydia Tarr um like we know that she lies about some things uh and so it would be reasonable to think that well she's lying about having abused the you know her position of power um in the ways that she's accused of but also I don't know like there are there are things about the movie that just make it hard to just genuinely like 100% think that there's always that like kernel of doubt right and there's like a few parts of the movie that give you this kernel of doubt and make it hard to actually say so I don't know it's really I mean it could be just I mean okay so like the very uncharitable reading of the movie or at least uncharitable from my perspective would be this is a movie about how we don't know anyone truly and so we shouldn't make moral judgments about them even when other people say otherwise like that's one way that I could see someone coming out of this movie thinking like well, cancel culture is bad because we will never know what happened. That's between them two, and they got to figure it out, right? That's one way to read this movie. Um, and if that is indeed, like, the intent of this movie, that seems like a bad thing to be... Like, I that that's a lame point to be making in a movie um, because the movie kind of invites us to make moral judgments anyway. Like, we are privy to details of this woman's personal life that the public wouldn't normally know. This isn't like a documentary in which we only have access to the things that filmmakers have access to. Like we see her alone in a room and things like that, you know, um, not to mention that that's just kind of a, that's just kind of a weird way to deal with this issue. But at the same time, like, I don't feel like the movie, the movie's not like 
really openly like sympathetic to victims either and not in, or at least not in the traditional way and in fact like the person who makes the accusation appears in the film at multiple points before she kills herself and we never see her face like she's just got red hair that's literally all we know about her we just keep seeing this woman from behind at a distance with red hair uh and we eventually put together that's what that's who she is but like the movie almost like perversely withholds any sort of information whatsoever about like who this person would have been like you know what do we even know about her like the only thing that we do know is that she appears to have been stalking Lydia Tarr um, at the beginning of the movie, or maybe she wasn't, maybe, I don't know. Like it's, it's unclear what's happening. That's what Lydia Tarr later claims has happened is that this woman was stalking her, which is why she was sending these kind of manic emails to her. Um, but I don't know, like it's a movie that at first feels really straightforward. And then the more you try to like parse it out, the more it kind of falls apart in terms of having something de definitive to stand on. And a lot of times I would say that that would be like a weakness in the movie. Like uh, this movie wasn't developed well enough, but I think that that's like actually what was the intended effect of the movie. Like, I think this movie was a very calculated attempt to make a movie that is impossible to parse on like the level of what is the reality that we were dealing with. And I don't really know what to do with that. Um, I do know that this movie was very entertaining, though. Like, it is, like like I said, like, Kate Blanchett is really good, and she is really fun to watch in the beginning stages of the movie where she's kind of on top of the world. And it is also really fun. Fun is the wrong word. It's also really engaging to watch as, like, her world starts to crumble around her because Kate Blanchett's performance gets increasingly like feral and you, you you know you see like as she has worked so hard or so carefully to build up this kind of safe world around her and all of a sudden those things start going away and it's like a really incredible performance and she adds a lot to the character that we might that we don't really get from the text of the film like you know or at least like as the character's written um you know there's just like ways in which she acts that i think like add a lot of nuance you know like i can imagine this movie being a lot less interesting if you didn't have like kate blanchett like adding the you can see like these conflicting emotions or, or conflicting thoughts like going on in her head like just by the way that kate blanchett will acts and also just her ability to like portray this person as someone who has basically lost touch with the ability to be close with people and have empathy for people, but also still understands how to uh, exist in the world. And like, she has big ideas and stuff. Like she's not like sociopathic in like the traditional sense, but like, for instance, there's this long running uh, little bit with uh, her neighbor. Like she lives in an apartment and her neighbor like continues to show up and uh you know as the film the film kind of like shows her as like being just like kind of disregarding this neighbor a bunch but like the way that Kate Blanchett plays it there's almost like a fear that is in there too like her encounter with someone who is not part of this world that she has curated is something that gives her anxiety um and that's really interesting um and where that goes is really kind of interesting and dark as well um I don't know. I'm kind of rambling at this point because there's a lot going on in this movie, but it's worth seeing. And it's a movie that seems to be crafted intentionally so that you can go talk to people about it because it is so opaque on a certain level. Um, but for a movie as opaque it is, it's also really approachable, I thought, uh, because of just how 
engaging uh, the central character is just as a screen presence. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I was telling Zach off mic, I saw this on a on a work night, like at nine o'clock in the evening, and it's like a two hour and 40 minute movie. And I was like prepared for this to be like, oh, this is gonna be a slow movie. I'm like caffeinated up. I gotta like fright, make sure I'm gonna be awake for this movie. But I don't, that didn't end up being a problem for me. Uh, it's, it's a pretty fast moving movie for the kind of movie that it is. You know, it's not like a thriller in the sense of like mission impossible or something like that but um it's a movie where it's constantly in motion and constantly developing its plot and the arc of this character and i thought it was just it was really watchable on that level like on a thematic level i don't really know what's going on there and maybe that's the point i don't know no it's it's one that i definitely i just i missed it while it was kind of in the area just because you know, it was tough to get away with the length, not because I was like, oh, God, three hours, but more just, you know, setting aside that time to, to go see it. But no, it's, I definitely want to try to watch it somehow before the end of the year. Yeah. And if people can see it in a theater, like I know everybody says, you know, you should watch movies in theaters. And I agree. But like the specific pacing of this movie and the way it is filmed, like really invites like a cinematic environment, because first of all, it's fairly deliberate and slow but in a way that when you're paying attention it ceases to be slow because of all these interesting details but if i would imagine like if we're to watch this at home and have like distractions or having to stop it a bunch like it would lose a lot of its momentum just because it's not a movie that has like this you know uh exciting forward momentum in like a traditional way but like it is this accumulation of details that eventually becomes really compelling and exciting um so I don't know, like I, it's, it's not like a movie with like big imagery or anything like that, but it's a movie that I think really benefits from like sitting in a room, watching it like on a big screen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tar. Well, speaking of, you know, from a movie that needs to be on the big screen to a movie that you can only watch at home. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I also watched another new release. Um, and that was the new cartoon saloon movie um, called My Father's Dragon. And uh, My Father's, or Cartoon Saloon, you've, I'm sure her, if you've listened to the podcast a lot, heard us talk about it. Um, this is the movie studio that, you know, brought us um, Secret of Kells and Wolf Walker and The Breadwinner, Song of the Sea. Um, so this is the new one from them. It is only on Netflix. Uh, it is yet again another really visually interesting animated film that is stuck on Netflix. Um, I don't know what's the deal with Netflix, but they scoop up all these interesting well, looking animated films and then don't distribute well, even them. Even worse, like Wolfwalkers, they they got a deal with Apple TV Plus, and so like who the like Apple Plus. The only people I know who have yeah. Apple Plus don't they like sign they like do it for like a month and watch stuff and then get rid of it after that month. They just watch Ted Lasso. Yeah, they'll like then... catch up on like Ted Lasso and whatever other shows and then be like out after the month and then do that again in like six, eight months again. Yeah, so I guess credit to Netflix. People actually watch Netflix. Yeah, that's well, that's um... what I'm saying. Like like Wolfwalkers, <laughs> I like it's an amazing movie that I wish people could see, but it's difficult to watch because you have to have Apple Plus. Yeah, um, so I think most most people have access to Netflix, hopefully, uh, and so you can watch My Father's Dragon, and I would recommend watching My Father's Dragon. 
it is the weakest of the cartoon saloon movies, I think. Um, and it's still good though. Uh, cause that's, it's a high pedigree. All the cartoon saloon movies are good to great. And this one's good. Um, it's is, written by the, the, not sorry to derail you. The, it's written by the woman who did, um, inside out and the good dinosaur for, uh, Pixar. I did not know that at all. Uh, I was about to say it's directed by uh, Nora Tuomi. I don't, how do you pronounce her last name? Is it Tuomi? Tuomi? As good as my guess would be. <laughs> my my Irish ancestors are uh, shaking their fists from their potato famine graves. Um, but uh, anyway, so this is the um, this is the woman. Um, She's a co-founder of the studio. Like, I mean, the studio, I think, is really small because it's all the same people always directing these movies. Well, it's either her or Tom Moore. Right. And so, like, her and Tom Moore co-directed The Secret of Kells. And then she directed Solo, I believe, The Breadwinner, which is kind of an outlier in uh, the Cartoon Saloon canon because it is uh, not set in Ireland. And it's not... It is in... um, What is it? Iran, yeah and it's it? not it, if i remember correctly it's not very like folklore heavy like the other ones are it's got some folklore but it's not irish folktale for folklore for sure like it's got like a recurring like like a fairy tale that i think that the like a grandmother tells to her daughter and it's been so long motif. since i saw it at, at any rate um so um she directed My Father's Dragon, which is, I guess, based on a children's book. I'm not familiar with the children's book. Uh, so it's possible that some of the things I say about this are because of it was in the children's book rather than it was like an independent creative decision. Um, but that said, like one of the re- reasons I feel like this is the weakest cartoon saloon movie uh, is that the plot kind of doesn't hold together. Um, it honestly does have a like good dinosaur feel to it. Now that you say it, now that you say it. Um, so the plot is that um, it's what appears to be the beginning of the Great Depression or something. Like it's set in this kind of like ambiguous space where I think it's supposed to be America, but all the city names are made up. Um, but this mom and her son like run a general store, but then. I think the depression hits or something hits like the dust bowl, something like that. Um, and the town that they're in, like basically dies, um, like no one lives there anymore. And so they can't keep the general store. So they have to move to a big city, which seems kind of like New York city, but it's called Denver green city. Cause there's not any green in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, it's real tough because, the mom keeps telling the boy that like, okay, we're going to be able to open up a store in Nevergreen city, just like we had in the previous place. But it turns out that like rent is ridiculous and, uh, they're having trouble making ends meet. And, uh, they have this jar that they're saving money so they can buy like stuffed for the store. But the jar keeps running empty because the mom has to use the change to like make phone calls so that she can ask for jobs and things like that. Um, and so eventually the kid gets real mad um, that the mom said promised that they would open up a store and the mom who's like stressed out and like trying to put food on the table and make sure they don't get evicted like yells at him and there's like a falling out and he runs off um, and meets this cat who talks to him and says like hey you look like you're in need of some money um, I know where you can find a dragon and then you can sell tickets to see this dragon and earn some money 
And the kid's like, that sounds good. Uh, and it turns out this dragon... That's such a wonderful scenario. <laughs> <laughs> turns out this dragon is on an island. Uh, and uh, so this kid hops on a whale to go to this island. Um, and on the way... <laughs> you just said it really nonchalantly. Well, like, this is... It's the thing. So then he hops on a whale, and the movie has like this uh, "Where the Wild Things Are" kind of structure, where it is initially set in this kind of realistic, like domestic environment, and then immediately just goes into fairy tale land. Like when the kid leaves, and ha- like upon like an emotional kind of outburst, and uh, it just kind of is uncommented upon. It's like, oh yeah, of course, off the coast of this, you know, out out, of, out in the harbor in the city is this magical island with a dragon. Um, there's also a magical island that is just tangerine trees, and they just can eat tangerines all the time, um, which is nice. But anyway, so this kid gets to this island and finds out this island is an island that is sinking into the ocean, um, and the dragon has been captured by these monkeys who have tied the dragon to the island, and the dragon has to fly upwards so that the island doesn't sink. It's like the dragon is like keeping the island afloat so that the... Um, the life on you know the the wildlife on the island these monkeys can survive and so the kid's going to steal the dragon but then in doing so that's going to like destroy the island uh, and so it becomes this whole thing um and eventually the kid like rescues the dragon and the dragon's like this kind of like goofy dude who doesn't know what's going on and uh he's kind of like immature and like afraid of everything and he and the kids strike up this friendship and eventually the monkeys turn out to be okay too because they're just scared for their lives. That's why they've captured the dragon. And then the kid kind of comes around to like, oh, I realized I was scared and my mom was scared and that's why we were yelling at each other. And then he goes back home um, and they've kind of made up and things get better for him. Um, I don't really know what happens to their money problems. It kind of gets dropped by the time he goes back. Um and I, I guess, like, that's kind of, like, my... The reason why this movie doesn't hold together. Um, like most cartoon saloon movies, it looks amazing. Um, this movie is just, like, visually sumptuous. Like, just the colors, and it's a little bit less, like... A lot of the old cartoon saloon movies have, like, this big, like... Like, really big geometric feel, where all the characters are, like, based on geometric shapes. Like, big, big rectangular shoulders or round heads and stuff. And this movie's a little bit less like that, but it's still really... In, really beautiful to look at in terms of animation um you've just got some just really amazing imagery and especially like once you get to that island and it's all just like impossible like geometry like impossible landscapes and like big mushrooms and you know kind of that sort of like fan just just uh rampant like imagination with no holds barred because it's animation you can do whatever you want in animation and it looks really cool um so like this movie is no less visually interesting than the other cartoon saloon movies. It's just the plot doesn't isn't there, and it is there at first. Like initially, like all the stuff with them having to go to the city and the money problems, and then the kid runs off and goes to the island. Like that's all good, but once he gets to the island, it kind of loses the thread a little bit and just becomes like this like accumulation of weird, kind of fun but also unrelated like fantasy stuff um, with the monkeys and the dragon and like stuff and where the wild things are is i feel like like um that's a good comparison point because where the wild things are at least like in the book as well as like the movie that was made off of it that also has a bunch of weird fantasy stuff you know all these big creatures and stuff but um all of that is building toward like a kind of emotional catharsis 
by the end of the movie. And I think that that's what this movie is trying to do too, is all of the fantasy hijinks are trying to be in like tie into that larger plot or larger emotional resonance that the kid, like that emotional epiphany that the kid has to get about fear and like understanding that everyone is afraid and you should treat people with compassion because of that. And like, that's nice, but I think it, the script is just not, successful at tying all those things together and so you get to this epiphany moment that feels like it should be big but it's not or it doesn't it doesn't connect as such um and so it kind of like you know is a little bit underwhelming in that regard um but it looks cool it looks super cool and i really wish that it hadn't ended up on netflix and instead had been in a theater um because I think it would be an amazing theatrical experience, just having colors whoosh at you. And, you know, we've got a Disney movie coming out uh, in a couple of weeks that seems a similar plot where it's like somebody traipsing through like weird fantasy environment. Um, mm-hmm. And Strange Worlds. Yeah, strange, I saw the first look the other day. Strange Worlds. And I mean, like, I mean, at this point, Disney can make like good looking CGI movies. And we've talked about this before. But in terms of like, you look at a like a like the trailer for that movie versus me having just watched this movie and I just think there's no way that that Disney movie is going to look even half as good as this movie even if like the designs are cooler just the just the vibrancy and the way that like all of cartoon saloon movies like their use of color it just like glows like it's their movies are just luminous because of the colors that they use and I just don't see that anywhere else in animation it's just really cool looking and I gotta watch it on Netflix with compression artifacts. Yeah. No, I'm looking at Strange World now. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of it looks like kind of like an updated Buck Rogers type situation thing. Um, and that's cool. I mean, it might yeah. be good. Maybe maybe it'll be good. But like this is the but movie no, I, I want to see in a theater. But yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. Like like it's it's lacking in it's lacking in the textures, you know? And I think that just kind of comes from the, this, the Disney house style that they have now. I just, I just not a giant fan of the Disney house style that they're using at this moment. The kind of frozen, uh, tangled, uh, you know, that one, but no, I, you know, but I agree with like, um, with cartoon saloon, there's just kind of this, it's, it's, you know, to a degree, why you you know you, why you go to uh, Ghibli movies as well? Like there's just this kind of like this this texture to it. There's just this kind of comfort to it that feels very akin to you know early twentieth century Disney animation that you know you you have that comfort feeling with, but it feels updated enough so it's not like it's some lost you know old art being practiced it, you know I, i'm like yeah it's it's not, it's, it's not pastiche it's, it's very it feels very modern it, still right yeah and in fact like the earlier ones like the ones um like a uh, secret of kells for instance like it's not that that movie's cheap looking but I, I i think they had less money to do that with and also the animation technology probably wasn't as good but it is like very visibly like indebted to like flash and that sort of thing like well um, and like i like you know i'm looking at the strange world i i like the secret of kells also because it's a deeply like 2d movie you know it feels like everything's kind of going t- like going that way like it never feels like that lack of and i'm like that's fine like i think we need like that variety to it like like even that on a very simple simplistic level is interesting to me 
because it's not right it's yeah. not that usual digital 3d scape that you're getting with like Lightyear, what you talked about a couple weeks ago and in, in something like um frozen or tangled or big hero six i think my thing is that like I like the way that Disney movies have looked in the past, like, like since Tangled. Like, I think they generally, like, before a lot of, like, animation studios figured out how to make, how to bring cartooniness back to, to CGI animation. Like, I like that. The problem is that, and this is always the problem with Disney animation, is that it is such a hegemonic force, like... I shouldn't have to scrounge around on Netflix to find a movie that they've not promoted at all to find something really beautiful in animation, like a, a healthy like animation scene or a, or, a, or a country's output or like, you know, whatever, like it should have room for like a diversity of styles. But I mean, blah 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 capitalism right you know like uh you know the the model that disney espouses is like uh it 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 undercuts any alternative to itself at all costs and um just has made a like a really hostile market for anything that's not disney or connected to disney or appears to be like disney in some way um and yeah. Anyway. Well, no. You know, this is the last thing. I, I sent you the picture that this weekend or this past weekend, um, Studio oh, Ghibli, the Ghibli. Yeah, Studio Ghibli teamed up with Disney on like this Baby Yoda short film, and like part of me kind of wants to see it just on the Ghibli factor, but part of me is also annoyed that it's you know that that team up's happening on and it's only on Disney Plus, like. There's just I'm just like I, I I texted Michael I was like really is just nothing sacred can we <laughs> not for Disney no um but 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 um again I've I feel like I've I've brought this up like a lot but Netflix is not really that like great of a company either but somehow they have an eye for animation like the net if you go scroll through like the netflix distributed animated features on netflix like it's a pretty good little like catalog of diverse styles interesting voices like stuff that at least is worth your attention on some level um and this is another addition to that so you know even if disney is kind of hedging everybody out of the theaters or has just conditioned people not to care about animation that doesn't have the disney brand or something like that you know at least you still got this you got this you got the house you got friggin um oh there's other ones too i'm just you know running blank on that um but it's good seek it out it's not as good as some of the other ones, but it's still good. It will probably be better than yeah. Strange Worlds. Yeah. At least this one, this the at least this one only has one writer. That Raya and the Last Dragon, I was on the podcast ranting about because it had like seven writers, and then whatever the next movie after that, what what was yeah. the? Oh shoot. Oh, you're talking about Encanto. Encanto. Was it Encanto? It might have been Encanto. That's the next one after. It Last might have been on content. Like, why Why do you need 50 damn writers for this? Like, it's not that complex. I don't know. It's true. One writer can give you a movie with problematic 
and yeah. incomplete character arcs it has, as well. So. It has six writers to write fucking Encanto. Well, <laughs> it's not complex. It's fun. They sing. Whatever. You know who else yeah. is going to sing? This goddamn smiling lieutenant who we're going to talk Hell about yeah. in part two. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Wee wee wee. We're going to talk about him after this break. Jazz up your lingerie, just like a melody. There's music when every ribbon has a flowing rhythm. We're laced in harmony, a silken symphony. It's music and just the right note for you. Color should be seen, let your step ins have no dull or gray tone. Wear your crave to sheen with some pep in up to date. Hey, hey, tunes, jazz up your lingerie, just like a melody. Be happy, choose snappy music to wear. Jazz up your teddy bear. I wonder if I dare. I mean to wake up, try something new. That's what I've got to do. Wake up! I'll show them. Me. I'll teach them. And we're back with part I'll two of episode 430 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be continuing our Ernst Lubitsch directed series with 1931's *The Smiling Lieutenant*, which is one of his uh, musicals that he made for Paramount when he uh, got into America. Directed by. Er- How many musicals did he make? I think like. I'm, I'm probably wrong, but like in the range of like four to five, maybe there's a there's a collection for uh, the Criterion Collection has like a little box set thing of all the musicals that he made, and he made a couple with um, with Maurice Chevalier, the the lead. Um, so, but uh, this one comes from a script by Samson Raphaelson and Ernst uh, Ernest Valja uh, or Vajda Vajda Vajda. The film stars Maurice Chevalier, Claudette Colbert, and Miriam Hopkins. A simple wink intended by Austrian palace guard Lieutenant Nicholas von Prien uh, for girlfriend Franzi is accidentally intercepted and misread by the visiting Prince Anna. As a result, the, uh, the soldier has no choice but to marry the royal lady and to move with her to the neighboring kingdom of Flossenthrum. Uh, his girlfriend follows to continue the romance and subversively give... Prince Anna, Princess Anna tips on how to keep her husband satisfied. Uh, according to a biography of Lubitsch by Scott Eyman, the director had discovered that his first wife was having an affair with his best friend and longtime collaborator, the screenwriter Hans Kralli. Uh, there had been a public fistfight. Uh, divorce papers had been served, and Lubitsch had left Hollywood for Paramount Studios in Astoria, Queens. Chevalier described performing, quote, smiles and cute winks of the eye a quote mechanical display of technique due to grief over his mother's death which happened while the film was in production lubich also played referee between colbert and hopkins who were determined to be shot from the same angle lubich encouraged their dispute uh, that suited the their characters on screen uh, by the 1950s, film experts believe that the film no longer existed. However, a print was recovered uh, in, in the 1990s in the Danish film archives. For Lubitsch, the new medium 
of sound movies wasn't just for recording dialogue, but also for bringing out the musicality contained in sound effects. He used sound to suggest whole realms of off-screen space unavailable to the silent film, employing sound cues as a way of replacing dialogue like the trumpet call in The Smiling Lieutenant, much as he would use visual cues to replace entire sequences of dramatic action. Uh, the Smiling Lieutenant was Paramount's biggest grocer of 1931. It was also named the year's best 10 by the New York Times, along with Charlie Chaplin's City Lights and F.W. Murnau's Taboo. And on that note, let's talk a little bit about The Smiling Lieutenant. Um, yeah, you got the ad, you know, the addition of sound compared to last week's offering. Um, and, I mean, I guess it's a musical. There are a number of like singing moments that you know are included in it but um it is weird to talk about this doesn't really i'm I'm not super familiar with older musicals but like so the earliest musical that i'm really familiar with is the wizard of oz which is only like eight years after this well i guess uh snow white and the seven dwarves is just seven years after this regardless it's amazing to me that those movies feel recognizably like what i would call a musical but this movie is not this movie is like they occasionally sing. Yeah, it's 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 odd. I mean, in like the in like I'm uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, like the first time they sing is Maurice Chevalier like looking straight at the camera and like making eye contact with you and then singing. And <laughs> it's just it's very like uh, it's very uh, discern like you know I didn't like it. I felt very felt very uh, uncomfortable because he's just like staring right at you, singing at you. And, like, it's this fourth wall breaking thing that you're just like, what's going on? That he only does, like, maybe at the beginning and the end. I can't remember if he does it again. It is really weird. Also, um, am I remembering correctly, this is one of the early, if not the first musical that used the music as part of its plot rather than... Because, like, I know, for instance, like, um, an early uh, musical that I've seen is, like, um, the Broadway Melodies Right, I think they won like Best Picture in the early '30s, and that is entirely like just here's a musical sequence, here's another musical sequence. It's almost like you're watching a broad, like a like a, a vaudeville thing, you know, where it's like, oh, um, we're just going to show you all these performances, and I mean, it's a, there's a little more to it than that, but um, I don't know. Like, it is interesting that like this was a format that had to be adapted to film, and film had to figure out well, what is the best way to have a film musical. And it seems like at the early, in the early years, they were unclear of how to do that. It kind of reminds me of like how they use sound in general. Like you get a lot, like if you watch a lot of those like early thirties, like talkies, there's a lot of like really awkward, like silences and stuff like that, where it's like they hadn't yet developed like the Foley uh, techniques or the vocabulary, like the audio vocabulary that now like kind of fill out the empty spaces between dialogue and movies that we're used to. And I kind of feel that way about this movie and other early musicals in that they were still trying to figure out what's the best way to incorporate songs into a film if we're not, you know, because it's different than a stage. I don't know. Although the funny thing is, like, the in terms of sound quality and stuff, this movie doesn't feel as old as it is. Like, I, I don't know, like the Ernst Lubitsch talking movies from the early 30s like this and like... um isn't Trouble in Paradise just a couple of years after this, something yeah. like that? Also, like those all feel really advanced in terms of how he uses sound. But in terms of the use of music, this that feels very embryonic for the genre. Well, that's what was interesting 
reading about like how this was kind of this and a, a number of his other movies around this period were um not groundbreaking but semi groundbreaking in its use of of sound because like we kind of take for granted you know little sounds like happening off screen whether like you know like they mentioned the the trumpet call or or people like calling from other rooms and like um I, you know, that was something that with the advent of the technology was kind of new. And so for him, that was really exciting to, it was, it seemed like from reading about how he approached it, it was like another way to make a joke. And so, um, like, that's why he started incorporating a lot of that stuff in there because he was like, oh, cool. Like it's another way I can make a joke about something that, um, and kind of can utilize what's on screen. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, I feel like this movie is fairly dense, like in terms of how it uses sound and what's on screen. I was expecting more song and dance, um, but otherwise, like this feels like, you know, this feels like an Ernst Lubitsch movie. Like, um, well, I, I watched, um, even though I wasn't in the episode last week, I watched I Don't Want to Be a Man. And there's like elements of that that I can tell are like Ernst Lubitsch E, but it's it's obviously so different because it's a silent film and, you know, from 1918. But like I'm watching this and this feels like definitively like by the same person who did like Bluebird's Eighth Wife or um, uh, Trouble in Paradise or like To Be or Not To Be. Like I can, it feels fully formed like what he's arrived at in terms of his, uh, like, kind of proclivities and styles. Uh, in fact, like, I was just on the Wikipedia page for this movie, and I know that last week Andrew talked about how people discussed the Lubitsch touch, and he didn't know what that meant. And apparently Billy Wilder coined that term in relation to this movie specifically. Um, and uh, I don't know if you were going to get to that, Zach. Or I was, but we can get common... to it now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if this is common knowledge or not, but... Uh... He was talking about the smiling lieutenant and how uh, the Lubitsch touch was how it uses what he calls super jokes and that like a joke will pile on top of another joke. And so it becomes even a little bit more like outrageous. Um, And the example he gives is the ending of this movie where it seems to be building the one thing and then it all of a sudden just like slams us with this really bizarre ending. (laughs) Which we can talk about maybe later, but uh. yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's it goes into a whole different direction. But yeah, um, no, that's and that is kind of interesting. I like also that um, it seems like something that was brought up or caught on, you know, later, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, um, just from like watching movies and especially like it coming from like these movies. Cause you know, I don't think even though, um, criterion has this box set and, and other, and people have like seen this and there's a little bit of scholarship behind it. It's also pretty, it's, you know, relatively new around the grand scheme of things just because yeah, I didn't realize that it had just been rediscovered in the nineties. Like that's, that's wild to me. Yeah. It was one of those where it just kind of got lost. Um, and I was reading something about how they had three, they had uh, like two or three copies that were silent um, for like international distribution. It was, uh, I don't know. It was kind of a, you know, it kind of had like this whole, but there wasn't like a deep well of information about like the, the process of bringing these back and, and things like that. I think it was one of those where they were like, Oh, here it is. Can you imagine being like, you know, the person who has to dub audio for the movie and trying to decide what to do with Maurice Chevalier 
like how do you make a german dub of that or a you know a swedish dub of that <laughs> that sounds awful this dude so let's talk let's talk about maurice Chevalier, Lettuce, who, this dude this dude is just dripping in uh in sexuality i guess for the people of the early part of the of the 1930s because let me tell you um there's a scene in this movie there's a scene in this movie where so the whole thing where he's like the whole winking thing is pretty fucking stupid so like claudette colbert who mind you he steals from charlie from charles ruggles yeah. <laughs> <laughs> earlier on in the movie which after seeing uh bringing up uh bringing up baby recently i was like oh hey what's up again um and i thought we were gonna get more of him and we did not but yeah yeah his, no he just is there and then he's gone <laughs> he's there talking about how he's in love with this woman who i guess kind of looks like his wife but 15 years younger and maurice chevalier is like i don't know about her just kidding i'm gonna steal her and just like flat out just takes her away <laughs> from him um and like there's this great like you know simp scene where he's like following behind them with like carrying her like musical st- carrying her violin and everything and they're like walking off to like go bang or something anyway um so this is a pre-code uh movie by the way and it, oh it, it makes it, pretty good advantage it, of it. <laughs> it takes very good i mean like literally people be banging the entire time um, and so the whole wink thing happens where like Claudette Colbert is just like waving at him. He's doing some little ceremony cause the fucking princess is coming and like, he just like gets going hard at like winking and like, you know, going, Hey, what's up girl? Like they're like doing that for like a good minute. And then the thing like flies by and he, and I, even though he probably could have stopped, he like was like, well, the winks happening and like winked and she's just like, Oh, so then like they have this whole thing where they what is it they say that he frowned at her or or he like made a face at her or something like there's like they have all these like newspapers she she's so sheltered that she apparently doesn't understand like (laughs) gestures um which or like human sexuality like there's this one part where she asks what a wink means and he's like oh you just wink at someone that you love and she's like but don't you like say other things he says like yes but this is when you love someone and want to do something about it no no her like (laughs) sheltered life is 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 nice comedy out of this um and so, and so then he has to like go and like issue an apology and like talk to him before they're gonna like chop his head off um and like the dude comes in there doesn't say much has like the most like off like french accent like like if he's um if you've seen beauty and the beast the candlestick is like a reference to to him like it's not no joke. Like he was intended to be like Maurice Chevalier is like this in all of his movies, and so if you've seen Beauty and the Beast, just think the candlestick. Yeah, so the candlestick walks in, um, and like the king, who's the princess's father, is just like, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he challenges. He's like, can you name or can you spell how like how to spell our country's name? Yeah. And so then Maurice <laughs> Chevalier like gets it, and that becomes like. Um, that like ignites all of the sexual feelings in the room because like the the king is smiling there's this like this gallery row of these older these old ladies who are all just like oh my gosh he can spell uh, the lines are hilarious it's something like this one woman's like batman sure knows his letters <laughs> and sure the other knows one is like he does he he does know his way around the alphabet <laughs> honestly like incredible line is that he that man sure knows his way around the alphabet that's fucking hilarious um 
and then but and then he's just like he's like oh yeah no i actually i winked at her because she was just so pretty and that just like kills the princess she's just like hell yeah so then everybody in this room is just like fuming with uh you know just fuming to to fuck this guy like they could have had just the whole scene where everybody's just like come here maurice chevalier and and it's just and like that whole thing like it's just crazy. It's 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 crazy, and it's it's just like the the absurdity of that setup and the like silliness of that. Uh, that that's kind of what coasted me with this movie. Is it just has like, I quite honestly like there were parts of it that kind of zoned me out. The Clyde, honestly, like anything with the Claudette Colbert, I was kind of bored with. Um, but when they were doing really silly, uh, royal stuff like before when, like when they get eventually they have to get married because he gets stuck into this lie and um they have this whole sequence where this guy they like bring these this man and this woman into the bed chamber where they're gonna like go after the wedding and they like mess they like spray perfume and stuff and like and like resituate the pillows and shit and then like they have to like recite back to this guy that they feel like the like the room has been set for the bride and groom and then he has like this like big old stick thing and he's like the bedchamber is now a royal bedchamber and then like walk out <laughs> and then like and then it cuts to them in the hallway and he like hits the thing again and he's like the royal wedding day is now the royal wedding night and then they like come in and I'm like this is so fucking stupid <laughs> it was killing me Oh, but then, like, that's when there's, like, another... This is the Lubitsch touch, I guess. There's, like, a joke on top of that where they walk in and the princess is already... She's like, all right, we're going to have sex now, right? And then... But he doesn't want to because he doesn't find her attractive because she's too uptight and doesn't know anything. Um, And so then the rest of the movie is her figuring out, how am I going to be sexy for this dude so he'll sleep with me? (laughs) He he literally (laughs) spends half the movie sprinting, like, sprinting up the staircase. He's just like, oh... (laughs) <laughs> like running up a staircase <laughs> it's great it's so good and when they finally like she gets trained to be sexy and he like opens the door and she's wearing like um i don't know i don't remember what she's wearing it's like something that's a little bit like racy for the 30s and she's just like chain smoking like that's the other thing that makes her sexy. And he, like and he like like walks in sees that closes the door sprints up the stairs because he can't walk up the stairs for whatever reason like opens his door and is like ho ho and like takes a shot of something he's like let's go and like runs back down um he's just like a real like the the morality of this movie is like non-existent like he's just a completely amoral character who's just like going from from shenanigans to shenanigans and that's he literally so like the whole thing that like instigates her getting sexy because she like eventually meets up with the claudette colbert character who like kind of gives her sex being sexy lessons but like the like that whole that's prompted by claudette colbert's like orchestra or or band or whatever that she plays with comes through to like perform and maurice chevalier since he's the you know prince of wherever the hell this place is um has her arrested and brought to him (laughs) and like that's how they they like have this whole scene where they hook up because he's just like oh as the prince when you have your powers you can come and you can arrest you and then we have privacy and you're just like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which the other thing i was thinking about like I, it has the what is this what is it called again it's uh floss and therm. i have to feel like though in 1931 they were like 
pretty much we want this to be Germany, but at this point in, in history, we do not want to mention Germany because it's literally Austria in this country. Um, and this is the early part of Hitler's rise to power. So they probably were like, yeah, let's not make it Austria and Germany. And Lubitsch had just like skipped town, right? Like he, yeah. he was like just fresh off the, the leaving Germany train. Yeah, this is like a year, I think a year into Hitler being elected democratically. That sounds, that sounds right. So, That's... yeah, so I think it was, yeah. I, I was just thinking about that because, like, when they get to the town, you're like, yeah, this is clearly Germany. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I wonder if, like, it was already, like, they were already writing the script and, like, then, like, you know, the Nazis, like, you know, take control of parliament or whatever. Everyone's, like, hitting the racers, like, oh, shit, shit, shit. <laughs> well, it's, it, like, like it kind of, like, works on this whole, it's almost like a Marx Brothers level where it's just, like, an absurd, yeah. it's like absurd country name. Is. Yeah, like, an absurd country name. They're just, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's silly. And that's, and that's what makes all the, like, royal, like, uh, uh, the stuff that they're you know the royal pageantry and rules and like all of this tradition so absurd because there's like what do you like why like why would why would any of this be happening yeah it is kind of like an interesting time in history to like have a movie like that and I guess in the United States there were there wasn't like you know the sort of like nostalgia for the era of like monarchs and stuff but like um and like I have to imagine that in the 1930s, in Europe at least, like you know there was this like problem. I, I I don't know. Like maybe I'm maybe I'm speaking out of out of my hat. But like in the fallout from World War One and stuff, you know, where you have this kind of brutal like birth into modernity and the kind of like modern nation state and all that sort of stuff. Like, I wonder if there was a sort of like, I mean, there certainly was in Germany, but like, you know, elsewhere, a nostalgia for like this kind of like pre-modern, like, oh, back when the monarch was around and blah, 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 blah. And this is kind of like a pissed take on that. I mean, maybe, um, it could be, I uh, you know it's it's such a weird it's such a weird moment in history, especially like when you're looking at like the people involved in the movie from Lubitsch to even like his his collaborators are all kind of German defectors. Um, it is it's just kind of like a weird like let's just all let's just throw them all together kind of like hodgepodge movie, and it's such a weird production too because like I was describing like Lubitsch is like getting divorced and he like got in a fist fight with the guy who he was a long time it was his best friend who che- who was fucking his wife um <laughs> and then they got divorced and then you have Claudette Colbert and Miriam Hopkins arguing you have Maurice Chevalier like you know doing his whole thing but also like sad because his mom died this seemed like a whole time it seemed like a weird old time it is I mean it's a weird movie like the the structure of it is just odd. Like, this is not a three-act structure, I don't believe. Um. <laughs> no, because no, the ending, like we were alluding to, the ending is, yeah, Claudette Colbert pretty much is like, yeah, you can have him because he's your husband, so that would be weird. Um, so here's how to be sexy. Here's how to turn him on. And then um, and then just leaves, like she's gone. 
And then, you know, Miriam Hopkins turns on the charm for Maurice Chevalier, who then, like, you have this scene that you're assuming, like, then they have sex. And then again, like, he's, he's like, coming to sing and break the fourth wall with the camera, and he's just like, yeah, this woman is very, very good. Yaha! Like, wee, 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 waha, boom. Like, jump into the room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's just a... Because you th- you think it's going oh Claudette Colbert's come to town like she's gonna steal him away or do something no she's just like yeah you can have him and then he's just like he doesn't care like as long as he does, he... the only reason he would have preferred to be because there's a few moments in the movie where he's already like entangled with the princess but he goes and sees uh, Claudette because he feel he's like still into her because he doesn't really like the princess that much but then by the end of the movie. It's just as clear that, like, the only reason he wasn't interested in the princess, it wasn't that he had feelings for a Claudette Colbert, it was that the 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 princess just didn't know how to smoke or be cool, you know, like... Yeah, just or, her, her, her vibe was off, and so... Her vibe this, was off. This, this movie could be described in, oh, her vibe was just off, sorry. <laughs> Which, honestly, like, kind of makes this movie really entertaining, because it's, it's, it's such a shallow, amoral thing it's so weird yeah there's nothing taken seriously in the movie and i mean and whenever there's a gesture toward like sincerity or something like that it is eventually just dashed on the rocks of like uh the character's libido and you know everything is kind of subject to that which is such a uh, such a strange um like thinking about next week, the shop around the corner, which is all about like there ain't th- that that whole energy is gone because <laughs> nobody's having sex and shop around the corner. It's all about you know yearning deep inside and turning it into a you know possibly turning it into a mil- mental illness or something. Um, this movie is all about just like yeah, whoever wants to bang me, I'm in love with. <laughs> Yeah, it almost reminds me of I don't know if you've ever like read any of like the. Uh like the like the original like Don Juan like poems or anything like that or like if you've read like a Candide or like a lot of those I've like, read Candide, kind of yeah. like a, yeah a lot of those like kind of picaresque sort of things where like it's just this dude getting into scrapes and he's <laughs> yeah, always like narrowly like escaping the scrapes and he's sleeping with women along the way like that that's like it's got like a big like that kind of energy it, it's a very chaotic energy going on i mean He's like a lieutenant, but like he's for the palace guard. He clearly is not like he kind of just is. He's in in like it's the movie opens with like not like all the palace guard men having to like run and report to duty because they're all off banging people. <laughs> like 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 it literally opens with that where like the like I forget one of the officers just like hey like like toots a horn or something's like hey come back and you just have these men running from rooms and windows and bushes <laughs> and you're just like okay um and then like maurice chevalier is like the king of uh, like of all of them he's just like yeah like that's what happens when you're a lieutenant that's what happens when you're in the palace guard at, in vienna i guess i guess so it's it's quite a movie i thought it was I thought it was really entertaining. Um, it's pretty entertaining. It, like, like, like I think we've said, there's not like a lot going on in terms of like depth, but like if you're going to make a movie that is 100% surfaces, you know, this, this is basically how you do it, I think. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I think Lubitsch would get better at like having movies that had this sort of like fleet, irreverent touch, but were also like maybe weightier, um, like to be or not to be or something like that. But I don't know how you would make this movie more serious without also ruining like what makes it special. Yeah, he's able to heart, you know, like to be or not to be has so many moments of like just like chaos energy going on. Um, but he's able, like, I think he does, he gets better at like keeping, he gets better at keeping them in check where it's like chaos energy, but also he's not like getting rid of the sentimentality. But it, you know, you also have like Jack Benny doing silly shit in To Be or Not To Be. So, yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for a movie that is like as boiled down to its like. It's like a different movie got boiled down into just one component of that, which is the just raunchy comedy um, and like weird like plot turns. Like this is this is in some regards like a rom com, right? You have like the meet cute and all that sort of stuff, but the romance is gone. Like there's no, there's barely a gesture toward there actually being a romance. Like the entirety of it is like just based on like the kind of comedic absurdity of the rom-com plot in which two unlikely people are thrust into a situation in which they have to like figure out each other and eventually they fall in love. Like it's that arc that's going on in the movie, but any element of like the kind of like romance or sweetness of it as has disappeared and we're all we're left with is like a single component uh, of like what makes a rom-com a rom-com and, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see a movie like that. I don't know that I've seen a movie that does that before. So I'm trying to find this was uh this was up for best picture. It the Grand Hotel won that year, which I think is a good movie. I don't know if you've seen the Grand Hotel. I haven't. Where's the they don't have the best picture? Let me look. Third. Cuz I I immediately had that thought. I was like, "Man, there were so many bad best pictures in the 1930s, like, um, but this was actually a good one. Grand Hotel. I've not seen. Oh, Shanghai Express was also up for best picture that year. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you have Smiling Lieutenant, Shanghai Express. I this, do not know any of the others. How do, how do you? Has this come out the same year as as City Lights? And City Lights is not. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? <laughs> like, like. I'm looking at this. I mean, you got a King Vidor movie. Yeah, I don't know. Was uh, yeah. was City Lights? You have two. Or, you have two Ernst Lubitsch movies. He, uh, one Hour with You and The Smiling Lieutenant are up. Oh wow. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, City Lights wasn't even one of those that like Chaplin fi- like financed overseas, so it's not even like that was. Yeah, I don't know. That is, that is weird, but um, yeah, I mean. Having not seen any of these, but Shanghai Express, Smiling Lieutenant, and Grand Hotel, like, this is among the best movies I've seen from 1931. Yeah. Oh, 1930, the, the 1932 Academy Awards, which is when this was awarded, was also, um, they gave an honorary Academy Award to Walt Disney for the creation of Mickey Mouse. So, real f- full circle podcast here. They were a few years behind on that, right? Isn't Steamboat Willie from like the 1920s? Well, this is when they were, you know, going, hey, good job on that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Any uh, any final thoughts on The Smiling Lieutenant? It, it's a little tough to track down 
I mean, I, I found it online. There's, a, I found a stream of it online that you can. It's through Daily Motion that I watched. That was pretty fine. Oh, I watched that same one. But um, it's yeah. uh, I, it, like I said, it's in the Criterion Collection through this Lubitsch Musicals box set. But I have not seen it on Criterion or Canopy or anything. Um, but again, like if you just Google "Smiling Lieutenant 1931," there's a Daily Motion. Um, link of it you can just watch it there and like it it's it's entertaining it's a silly it's a silly ass movie yeah it's it's good um it's it's yeah it's a, it's a fun way to spend an hour it's only like 80 minutes or something like that it's not it goes by it goes down easy um but yeah it's there's not really a lot to like honestly like i think our uh discussion on this is shorter than our part one and it's it's the kind of movie that there's not a lot to say about it, to be honest, except for like the kind of production details and stuff. Like it's, it's just, is what it is. Yeah. I, I was reading that. So this was, um, this was, they filmed it in Astoria, Queens in New York. Um, and that was a whole thing. It wasn't in LA, but yeah, I don't know. Dude, Maurice Chevalier, silly, silly, silly dude. Like I, I couldn't just get over just how much of like a, like if you, like you do a like a very stereotypical French impression. It's pretty much what that guy's like. Yeah, it it is really funny. The first it's, time I saw a movie with him in it, I'm like, this guy can't be for real. Like this has got to be some American <laughs> just doing a goof, but he's actually French. <laughs> I'm sure he's still doing a goof. I kind of want. I kind of want to like find see if I can find an interview of him like just being normal and if he's still like it. <laughs> I hope he's still like it. I hope he's just like like a method actor. <laughs> like I'm just like even though it's like way later like I just envision, uh, envision him like on Charlie Rose and he's just like, "Oh. Well, Mr. Charlie." Ah. <laughs> you know, like just doing stupid shit. <laughs> And Charlie Rose is getting like hot under the collar. He's like, "What you doing after this, Maurice? What's going on here, Maurice?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like you could have him on like Johnny Carson, just like bouncing around like Pee Wee Herman or something. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What, um, a, what a performance. <laughs> uh, well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/cinematary on Twitter. Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we uh, list all the movies that we talked about in this, about in this episode. Um, if you would like to support the show, uh, patreon.com slash cinematary. Um, thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marthothi, Titus Arthur, and uh, Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Next week, we're going to continue our Lubitsch series with, uh, uh, 19, oh shoot, I didn't look at the, was it 1933? 1940s, um, 1940s, the shop around the corner, so we're going to get a lot of nice, um, I'm going to do a lot of Jimmy Stewart impressions. <laughs> oh, yeah, you work at this shop? This shop around the corner? Oh, I have to be careful, it goes into like a Jerry Seinfeld thing. What's the deal with shops? <laughs> uh, yeah, well. but uh, shop around the corner. I honestly, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, you're getting holiday, Christmas, you know, Thanksgiving season. It's a good one for that. So if you would like to watch ahead of time, um, it's on HBO Max. 
but uh it's a good good holiday quite honestly i like it's it's the it's my favorite of the two holiday jimmy stewart movies between this and uh uh a wonderful life it's less emotionally fraught for sure it's got that lubich touch get that lubich touch (laughs) um until next week thank y'all for listening we'll see you then